So you, I asked if you were very good at cooking. Uh, I am. I am the cook in my family. In fact, I I won the Mister USA pageant, uh, the first ever Mister USA pageant in New York City. Uh, doing a, a cooking demonstration. Uh, and one of the points that I made to be a young Jew, a young, you know, and a, and a, a desirable bachelor, you have to know how to cook because, because our, our parents' generation, our mothers did all the cooking. And I don't know about you, but most of my friends, the women I know in their 20s, they said, Feh, my mother did this. I'm never learning to do this. I don't want to do this. And the guys said, I want to eat. I better learn how to cook. So when I look at most of my peers now, most of them, the man is the dominant cook in the family. There's something about men in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who I think have really, we learned to cook. Our mothers made us do it. They were good feminists. They made us do it. And our wives looked at their mothers and said, never, never again. <laughs> Welcome to The Kitchen Stories produced by the Jewish Museum and Archives of BC. I'm your host, Michael Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. Today we present you with something a little different. Over the course of the past year, we've interviewed over 30 people about their relationship to food. Sometimes these discussions were grounded in very deliberate and transparent topics, family background, diaspora, holidays, recipes, what we started to notice, though, as these interviews went on, was that sometimes there were smaller hints towards other topics. Not necessarily topics that were outright front and center, but hinted at in the margins, pointed to in offhand comments or statements. These small remarks spoke volumes. We were interested in the ways that gender is implicated in food, the expectations, the assumptions, the defiances. Today we hear from people, some of whom feature in earlier episodes, speaking to the complicated and messy topic of gender and food. What were the gender expectations in traditional Jewish cooking in different parts of the world? And how have these expectations changed over time? Yeah, just learning from them. From It, it was very much a, a woman thing, I must say. My father, Abba Shalom, means he passed away. Um, the only thing that he could do, he passed away in his 80s, mid-80s, the only thing that he could do was make a piece of toast, make a cup of tea and fry an egg. Honestly, that was the My only thing he could do. My dad couldn't even fry an egg. Oh, he couldn't. He couldn't. He wouldn't mm. have known how to fry an egg. Yeah. Shelley Goldberg and Nadine Katz have been friends for over 20 years. They shared some memories from their early life in South Africa prior to immigrating to Canada. We always used to laugh at him that he was going to burn the water when he boiled it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He so could barely I, so make tea. The men did not yeah, do any not cooking then. All. They went like today. You'll have men who you know will make a meal and help themselves or whatever. Yeah. But then not at all. Not the Jewish men. No, they didn't no. clean. No, they didn't deal with the children. No. Uh, they just sat down at yeah, the yeah. table. I did a lot of baking. I didn't. My Our maids cooked everything for us based on the cooking that they were taught mm -hmm. from um, our parents and grandparents. Our particular maids were amazing. They had been that with us for it. a very long time, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Mine, I used to actually like fight because I wanted to make it and she wanted to make it. <laughs> so we, used, we had a bit of a... 
problem. <laughs> she just wanted to, she liked to bake, yeah, and I liked to bake, so she would do, no, it was nothing argumentative at all, no, 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 no. I guess who, who wants to bake and who wants to look after the kids? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. I'm, I'm just kidding. But I learned to cook when I immigrated to Israel. I was single, I was 19, and I had to learn how to cook. Yeah. And I was living with a few friends and I ended up being the person who knew how to cook. Mm. On the Jewish holidays, all the single people that we knew who lived in our area, or if we knew, like my sister lived in Jerusalem and I lived in Tel Aviv, she'd come to me for Passover, or she'd come, even though it wouldn't be kosher, it would be the meal, and it mm. would be getting together, and it would be the celebration. All the people who didn't have anywhere to go would come to me. You know, you end up loving mm. it because it's, such a good feeling mm. and I'm I'm glad that I've passed that on to my kids because now they love it mm. yeah when when my son lived in Jerusalem for one year he was the one who did that in the dormitories yeah. as a potential wife if you could cook well that was a good thing was that something that kind of were ever thinking about like having to learn to cook no, that ever, like, not no, for me no I no I was a feminist Whether I you was could a bit of a hippie who, who, who yeah. cared yeah. I was a hippie if you get a maid you get a maid who can cook yeah <laughs> I didn't even think that far if my husband needed me to cook mm. he wasn't going to be my husband mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah I didn't yeah. didn't no. do it for us yeah, yeah. I mean, even though there's else. quite an age difference between us hmm? Only seven years. Right. Shelley and Nadine shared with us some of the South African cookbooks that they've kept through the years. In these black and white pages, alongside the list of ingredients and cooking instructions, there were often tips for the housewife. Uh, screw top lids, which are difficult to unscrew, oh, yes. may be loosened by a few sharp taps with the heel of the lady's shoe. Oh, yes. Well, we tap it with a spoon now. Right. Yeah. But yes, but that was a lady's shoe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's like that, um, you know, that housekeeper's 1950s? Right. You know that thing with, you know, how to keep your husband happy? <laughs> you know, oh, it's hilarious. When, when he comes home, make sure that the slippers are out for him oh, right. and, get, and make sure that the children are all bathed and clean and ready for bed and gown ready and so he can sit. It's, it's the 19th good housekeeping oh tips for the good housewife. Yeah. It's, do you, do yeah. you, do you yeah. remember that one? So yeah, it's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Did you get to help out in the kitchen? No. No? No. I never did. I think I watched. Daria Kai is a local artist who featured in our last episode, Fresh Roots. I remember watching and, and observing like how onions um, were cut. Like, there was like there was it was pretty gendered and I was probably insecure about about like my sexuality and my gender so I was kind of like not wanting to kind of do anything that would make people question it. I remember there was like a divide in labor as far as like 
Grandma would do most of it, but my um, my grandfather was in charge of the onions because he could <laughs> cut the like thinnest onions. That was his job. So he would just like cut the onions, like in his hand without a chopping board, just like doing it, kind of these like slivers. Um, and then Grandma in the kitchen would just like kind of be be there the whole day, and she worked pretty slowly. I think my accent was more like listening and learning and not so much like hands-on. Our family um, is Sephardic. Um, all four grandparents came from Ro the Isle of Rhodes and two moved uh, directly to Atlanta, Georgia and two to Seattle where um, uh, those are two of the largest Sephardic communities. Claire Hammer and Estelle Sanderson are sisters who shared their stories with us about the Sephardic food they grew up eating the hard work their mother did to bring them these delicious foods, and the ways they cook together as sisters and mothers to keep their recipes alive. My mother's parents came to Seattle because um, my grandmother's brothers were there, and Seattle to them most resembled the Greek islands because of the water and the fishing. Grandma was always in the kitchen. <laughs> she was. Um, our food traditions are very close to Mediterranean food. Um, we cook with a lot of olive oil, spinach, and tomato sauce. And, and Romano cheese. Yeah. Always for, oh yeah, my grandpa would come to the table and he'd take an orange and peel it all in one. Or an apple. Or an apple, and he'd peel it all in one thing, so that would be a big thing. He'd come out with the, the peel. Yeah, that was and entertainment for us kids. Oh, and there was, there was something with the fish. Oh yeah, when we were kids, I remember being at his house, and you know, they wasted nothing. So my grandfather, he had the fish head, and he's sitting there eating it, and then all of us kids gathered around, and he put the whole eye in his mouth and then spit out the eyeball. Sephardic food. Did your mom as well? Oh yes, she was the best. Oh yes. Okay. And she gave all of us lessons. The treats were these. We call them dizayunu, which is um, it's, it's like a it's a savory baking, but that sweet. Our ultimate. Yeah. We yeah, like that's brunch food. We would have it for a family brunch or something. That is like the and top of the list. Now we all appreciate how much work it, it was, and expensive because the cheese is expensive. But my mother would make hundreds of them hundreds and we would all come gather she'd supply all we'd of us eat them stuff. like they had no value now you get two tickets when they <laughs> serve them you get two <laughs> what was your your grandmother or your mother's signature dish probably the boys yeah the spinach it, it's, it's, a a yeast, dough. it's a yeast dough. It's a yeast stretch dough. Yeah. And so you make this yeast dough, and then you chop up spinach. It has to be done the night before and laid out on tablecloths on the table to dry. And then... Oh, yeah. Oh, my it's whole a table, whole... My whole table will be filled. It's, it's a whole process. And it's a day job. Um, and then you make the dough, and you break off little balls, and you have a cookie sheet with oil in it. And then you float the little balls in the oil until they become real light. And then with your hands, you spread the dough out. And then you, you've mixed your spinach, not too much at one time. With a feta cheese. With feta romano cheese, cheese, romano cheese, and a pinch of flour. And then you put a handful of that into the dough and fold them up like an envelope. And brush a little more oil on the top and then bake <laughs> them. 
and they're loaded with oil and cheese. And they're they to die are, for. and the house stinks. They oh yeah, the oh house reeks for three days after shower. cheese. <laughs> but they are the best thing in the entire world, and I would say that is probably all of our favorites. Spinach boyu, B O Y O S. Oh, O S. One time when she wasn't there, my daughter and I were making them with a friend of hers, and we we said, well, when she's at our house making them with us, she only allows us to eat two. So we said, let's see how many we could really eat, like till you couldn't eat any more of them. How many did you have? I'm not telling you, <laughs> <laughs> but it was more than two. of her daughter's wedding we had a traditional Saturday brunch at my oh, yeah, house, house with every Sephardic delicacy dairy wise and all the my nieces and nephews and siblings were here and it was like a tribute to my mother so we had everything and no, lim- and no limits on anything yeah. so it would be the boyus the barekas the spinach quajadu Brown hard boiled eggs. We cook oh, that. Brown we, hard boiled we eggs. We cook those with onion skins and pepper, slowly. That would be a tr- also something we used on the holidays, like for Passover. Yeah, the eggs would be brown. Yeah. How much of a responsibility do you feel to do things the way your mom or your grandmother did, or are you like, you know, adjusting the tradition, making it your own? I think we adjusted a bit. It's watered down a bit. But I, yeah. But I mean, I think we do what we do to keep it going. I don't even know if I do it to pass it down. I do it because it's comfort. I like it. It's comfort. It's home. were Sephardic when you say growing yeah up, growing up we didn't yeah. know any Ashkenazic no, Manette was Ashkenazic but she didn't cook Sephardic but because it was intermarriage in my parents day if you married an Ashkenazic so <laughs> it, that was a, a biggie really oh yeah. that was like marrying out so it was a very tight community yeah very. there's two Sephardic synagogues in Seattle where we grew up and um, oh yeah I mean they really stuck together. So my Baba, I didn't know her. She um, she died when I was, uh, my grandfather was gone already. My Baba was, uh, died when I was a baby. But, um, but my mother, who came from a very different tradition, had learned things from my Baba that she, you know, we learned to make from her. Uh, and um, and she followed my father, which in the, it was the thing in the day. She'd follow my father's tradition, his custom. That's Carol Herbert. Her mother was born in Seattle, of Rudesli and Turkish origin, and her father emigrated to Canada by way of Russia in 1912. And my grandmother, my grandfather came in the early early 1900s. Again, came uh, she came, they came as teenagers to. Seattle. Actually, my brother-in-law, um, his gra- his grandfather had been one of the first settlers in Seattle. So, so they came to Seattle, and actually, there's photographs over there on the public market 
of my grandmother and my grandfather with a stall in the public market in the Pike Place Market. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. so that one over, the, the fourth one over. Right. Yeah. Um, I was very close to my grandmother. She lived in Seattle. We saw her frequently. And, uh, and, and she and my aunts, and there's still two surviving aunts, that one of the things she did was she cooked. I mean, the day she died in her early 70s, she was 73, I think, she died with a full freezer, right? Even, it, you know, even though she was quite limited physically in her, you know, she, was, she had a heart condition and so on, cooking was what she did. And she made boyus, which were the, I mean, that's a sort of classic, it's a spinach-filled pastry. Mm. Uh, my sister makes it. I've made it, but I've made it with my aunt. I don't make that one alone. And we had, for months after she died, mm. we had her food which is kind of weird maybe but you know it we all felt that connection and we very purposely um some of us who hadn't cooked i mean i was you know i was a young woman i had little kids i mean well actually when my grandmother died was just just married i wanted to know how to do those things so i wouldn't lose it my sister there are four girls in our family one of my sisters married a polycar who's a sephardic guy in seattle so she re-entered and she makes everything, like her holidays are always Sephardic cooking because she follows her husband's custom. Anyway, my dad went to Saskatoon and then he went to, um, to uh, Drumheller, Alberta, which was at that time a little town with a boardwalk. He was an articling as a lawyer and uh, um, he had been the sort of top student in Saskatchewan, goes off to article and is fixed up. Um, he and his buddies decide to go down to Seattle and at that time, the only road was through the States. They went through Spokane. It was a long trip. Mm. And he's fixed up for a blind date with my mother, and that's their wedding picture. My mother was a concert pianist. She was a, uh, in her late wow. teens, and she was actually seeing somebody else. But this very <laughs> handsome man from Canada comes, that's and they sorry. meet, and ultimately they, uh, they uh, become engaged, and then they get married. But it was it was not an easy thing in those days. In the even in 1930s, um, a marrying an Ashkenaz marrying a, like within the Sephardic community mm -hmm. for a Sephardic community for a Sephardic girl to marry an Ashkenazi boy was sort of like intermarriage. It was not quite as wow. bad, but yeah. but it, and, the, and what was the concern? The concern was losing the culture. They would have card parties at my grandmother's house in Seattle. She taught me to play poker, for example, uh, uh, and canasta. Um, and they would serve um, dulce. Uh, so in Turkey, you can buy to this day, you buy a set that comes with little tiny spoons on the outside and a little and a glass dish in the middle. And and that's a specific thing. It's a dulce. Um, um, dulce means sweet mm -hmm. um, container, and it's for you candied lemon peel or orange peel. Oh wow! And um, so it was not like a really thick marmalade, like really, yeah. really, okay. really, but more peel than than than, mm -hmm. than jam, but but mixed. Uh, it was a thick a thick marmalade um, with a lot of solid in it, and they would serve it in this little thing. And you'd take a spoon, you'd have your own spoon, and you'd take a little bit, and that was that was what they would have while they were playing cards. Going back even younger at a time when I lived in Eritrea, um, but, but all through my young life, my mother would make these extravagant birthday parties for me. 
um, where I was supposed to learn how to be a hostess by handing out the little goodies. But there were all sorts of cakes and sandwiches that my mother would prepare, and of course, a birthday cake. Janice Mazur had an upbringing in Africa, where she was taught that it was okay to be Jewish, but better to act British. So I always used to dread my birthday parties because I never knew if I would behave correctly as a young lady should. When I was older and we, um, in my teens, so it must have been, no, it must have been in school holidays because I remember um, the German cook who was not much older than I, a German chef, and I had a couple of dates and my, my, my parents were really extremely upset that I, a Jewish girl, was dating a, Jew, um, a German boy, well, young man really. You can imagine this was in the 1950s, not so long past the war. But anyway, he was an amazing cook and the, the menu was quite extensive. Because I was a young lady or learning to become a young lady, um, I was allowed a baby sham, which is not uh, alcoholic. Um, I'm not sure even if you can get them these days. It came in a pretty little bottle with a, um, a little Bambi on it, and um, it fizzed a little bit, and it was a bit sweet. Anyway, that was supposed to be elegant. You know, it's customs with the Arabs and the Indians and everybody down and we, us too. You have to be a virgin and you have to show proof. And if you're not, the, the man can kill you or tell you to get out. Hazel Stevens grew up in Bangalore, where her father ran a successful textiles and clothing business that stayed in operation throughout the Second World War. For more of her story, Tune in to episode three, Faraway Foods. So it, he lived in fear, my parents lived in fear, and they made sure that we didn't get out. And then this uh, David Kaufman, who loved my sister, he told my father that they want to get married. And uh, they must have had an affair before they got married. So um, he told the servant, when is the sub going to kill the chicken? So he took a handkerchief and dipped it in the chicken blood and kept it aside so my mother would see that she was a virgin. And I don't know if I should tell you this. The Americans wanted to put a beauty contest on. And one girl came up to me and says, Hazel, I don't have any dresses. Can I borrow one from your store? You know, and that's a no-no. So I gave her a beautiful dress and took her by the back to start. And she says, can you come and dress me? And I said, okay. And then I went to the Bowering Institute and I started to dress her and she was all ready. And then this American grabbed hold of me and says, you are entering it. And I, no, 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 no. And I, in the end, they said I was the winner, but I, and they were going to give me a fur coat and I ran and took my bike and I was so frightened. 
and then the next day, the ladies were telling my father that your daughter, who, you know, like like as a bad girl, she went there, and uh, I don't want to tell you what happened. Did I ever get a telling off? I did a, a Magen David tofu stir-fry, so I, as a vegetarian I had to uh, hi- highlight uh, that. So what was, was Jewish about it, yes, I, uh, I used a, a cookie cutter to make, uh, make Magen David shaped tofu. And it is, the beauty of a, sto- a stir-fry is you can make it en masse, so it's the meal I made for all my Shabbat dinners on a, on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> you want to know the real secret to good tofu? Yeah. It takes a little bit of advanced preparation, but marinate, everyone knows that. Then bake, then fry. The Kitchen Stories is produced by the Jewish Museum and Archives of BC. Reporting, production, and editing is by April Thompson, with assistance from Elisa Lazier and myself, Michael Schwartz. Audio mastering is by Jeff Mayer. We'd like to thank everyone who participated in today's episode and generously set aside time to share their stories with us. Subscribe to The Kitchen Stories on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. New episodes will be released every two weeks from now until September. If you like the work we do, please consider becoming a sponsor. Community contributions make possible all the projects undertaken by the Jewish Museum and Archives of BC. To learn more about sponsoring an episode or another JMABC project, contact info at jewishmuseum.ca. Kitchen Stories is part of the JMABC series Feeding Community, a collection of food programs offered through the summer of 2017. If you've enjoyed today's episode, consider signing up for a session of the Chosen Food Supper Club, a series of dinners hosted by some of the guests featured in this podcast. The Chosen Food Supper Club occurs on Sunday evenings through the spring and summer of 2017, with each session showcasing one style of Jewish cuisine, from a traditional South African barbecue to a Syrian Rosh Hashanah feast. Sign up today at jewishmuseum.ca. Feeding Community is sponsored by InstaFund, with additional support provided by the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver, the Jewish Community Foundation, the Government of Canada, the Province of British Columbia, and the City of Vancouver. Thanks for joining us. 